to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Picking my three-year-old granddaughter up from preschool not too long ago, I just asked her the normal question. Hey, kiddo, what'd you have for lunch today? She said, pasta, Biba. That's what she calls me, Biba. I wanted peanut butter and jelly, but I can't have it in school because it can make my friends sick. I really felt like crying in that minute when she said that to me. Felt like crying that food allergies, in the case that she was referring to, peanut allergies are so common that my then three-year-old granddaughter would be able to articulate this to me so clearly. What's so amazing is that allergies at all weren't even discussed in the medical literature until the 19th century in England. And what happened was, was more and more people were moving to the cities and people in what was considered the upper classes started to develop hay fever. So at that time, the condition was estimated, hay fever, not food allergies, was estimated to affect at most about one in 30 people and mostly the wealthy because they didn't get dirty and have contact with soil or farm animals, actually. And they began to spend increasing amounts of indoors. So it was interesting. It was actually considered a status symbol to have seasonal allergies. Now, seasonal allergies or hay fever is clearly a household term. I'm sure nobody listening to this doesn't know somebody affected probably in your own home because about as many as 40% of all kids actually have a seasonal allergy. But what's really scary is the growing rate of allergic and inflammatory conditions in children in general. Food allergies, peanut, fish, soy, others affect one in 12 children under four, or about six to 8% of kids. And that's with a true food allergy. And about 4% of all kids under 18, and that's about 3 million kids, have a true food allergy. So not a food sensitivity where eating something can make you not feel well or give you indigestion or headaches, but a true food allergy where you could actually have anaphylaxis and end up in the hospital or die. The Centers for Disease Control estimates an almost 20% increase in food allergies since the 1990s. And it's not just food allergies, but it's autoimmune diseases. Celiac disease, for example, now affects about 1 in 130 Americans or 1 in 80 kids with some kind of celiac or gluten intolerance. And the rate of peanut allergies in the U.S. has doubled since the late 1990s. Additionally, there are a lot of conditions that have been related to food allergies, which are also vastly on the rise. So eczema affects about one in five kids or about 15% of all children, and that's tripled in the last 30 years. Asthma is now the most prevalent chronic disease, and it affects about one in eight kids in the U.S., even more African-American kids and kids in certain communities where it affects up to 40% of all kids, and it leads to 15 million missed days of school a year. And that rate has also tripled since the 1980s. 
autoimmunity has sharply increased in a number of in the recent years and it's not just the number of kids affected with these conditions but we now know that these conditions can also set the tone for lifelong adult conditions because they all reflect excesses of inflammation in the body so kids who are on this trajectory with eczema and food allergies and asthma are more likely to develop autoimmune diseases and are more likely to develop things like diabetes and heart disease later in life. Today, we are all truly fortunate to have my friend and colleague Robin O'Brien here to talk with us about food, food allergies, and her trajectory as a food activist mom. Robin is a former financial and food industry allergist And she has triggered an allergic reaction in the food industry. And it started when she asked the question, are we allergic to food or to what's been done to it? Robin has been called food's Erin Brockovich by Bloomberg and the New York Times. And in fact, she's been shouted out and touted by Erin Brockovich herself. For 10 years, Robin has helped lead a food awakening amongst consumers, corporations, and political leaders. From, a conservative, from conservative Texas families, Robin earned an MBA on a full scholarship, graduating as the top woman in her class before going to work as a financial analyst that covered the food industry. Armed with data and analytics, food companies now responding to Robin's work include Kraft, Coca-Cola, Burger King, Chipotle, Nestle, Target, and others. She sheds light on how the changing landscape of food and health are impacting the food industry and our economy. While working as an equity analyst, she was also specifically assigned to cover the food industry, where she had the opportunity to meet with the management teams from Kroger, Costco, Whole Foods, and other companies on a regular basis. She also met with Goldman Sachs, Henry Paulson, uh, Goldman Sachs, Henry Paulson, eBay's Meg Whitman, and Martha Stewart as they were taking their companies public. She leads a nonprofit and advisory firm and is a best-selling author, public speaker, strategist, and I would say first among those is a mom of four. Yes, she really is. She brings insight and detailed analysis to her research on the health of the American food system as documented in her first book, The Unhealthy Truth. Her work has appeared on CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg, The Today Show, Good Morning America, Fox News, and in the Washington Post, and countless other media outlets. And she wrote a very popular column for Prevention Magazine called Inspired Bites while serving as the executive director of the Allergy Kids Foundation and doing strategic work, advisory work for companies making trend-setting changes in the food industry. Robin has been named by Shape Magazine as a woman to shape the world, by Forbes Magazine, Forbes Woman, as one of the 20 inspiring women to follow on Twitter and by the Discovery Channel as one of the top 15 visionaries. Her TEDx talks have been widely received. Recruited by institutions like Enron and the oil and gas industry, Robin grew up in Houston before moving to Colorado and is the founder of Allergy Kids Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit. The mission of Allergy Kids is to make clean and safe food affordable to all families, Her focus is on restoring the health of American families in order to address the burden that disease is placing on our economy. Allergy Kids addresses the needs of the one in three American children that now has allergies, autism, ADHD, and asthma, and the role that additives in our food supply are having on our health. The foundation also works closely with those fighting cancer, particularly those with specific dietary needs. On Mother's Day 2009, 
Random House published Robin's acclaimed book, The Unhealthy Truth, How Our Food is Making Us Sick and What We Can Do About It. And today, Robin is regarded as a food and health expert, sought-after speaker who lectures and writes extensively, addressing the economic burden that disease is placing on our families, our companies, our country, and our future. She serves on the board of directors of Healthy Child, Healthy World, and other nonprofit organizations. Her work is recognized and supported by renowned individuals such as Dr. Oz, Robert Kennedy Jr., Ted Turner, Bonnie Raitt, and Prince Charles. She serves on advisory boards for startups, and she's been hired to speak at Target, Compass Food Group, Bloomberg, and to both organic and multinational food companies. She's constructive and solution-oriented, recognizing that food solutions must address shareholders and stockholders' concerns if they're going to be true solutions. Named after a farmer, she's also focused on supply chain issue and the financial structure of the farming system. While she's often sought out by investment teams and capital groups, she remains committed to working with food companies, farmers, and families and building a new food economy. Since giving her first TED Talk in 2011, in which she discusses research she conducted almost 10 years ago, the World Health Organization now reports that the U.S. ranks 7th out of almost 200 countries worldwide in cancer rates and has declared glyphosate an ingredient used on genetically modified crops a probable carcinogen. Pediatric cancer and food allergy rates are still increasing in the U.S., and her TEDx talk made Robin a lightning rod, to say the least, for those resistant to seeing the change in the status quo. Today, she continues to shine a light on the health of our country and statistics that relate to families, farmers, and our food economy and to speak to multinational corporations, organic companies, farm and health organizations about the new food economy. Robin firmly believes that while we can't change the beginning of our stories, we can change the end. Ten years into this work, she's also a living testimony to the fact that hope is the knowledge and that change is possible, even when it seems hard to imagine. Now, statistics being what they are, when something happens to your child... It's 100%. That's the statistic, 100%. Robin, thank you for being here. I am so grateful with all you're doing and being a mom that you made time to join me today. I know it's just part of your commitment. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, you are a pioneer way out in front of so many of us. So I'm just so thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down and spend this time with you today. I know we have to do podcasts with each other to spend time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We're both so busy. I just love hanging I out. I love our evening chats. Those are good too. So I know. Robin, you didn't wake up a food activist or a natural foods person. In fact, you've described to me in our personal chats, I hope you don't mind my sharing, but coming from a pretty conservative Texas family and background, but something happened on one fateful day that transformed your life. Can you share with listeners what happened at your kitchen table that morning that started you on the journey you're on now? Yeah. I mean, I was just your typical American consumer. I grew up in Texas and I just ate whatever I ate. You know, I didn't think about it. I didn't read labels. I thought that people were, that were paying attention to all that stuff. I just figured it was some sort of hobby they enjoyed. And it just wasn't part of my everyday. And especially, you know, once we kind of 
went down the route of having kids. We had four kids in, in just under five years. And so it was crazy. And I didn't want anybody telling me how to feed my kids. And you know, having grown up in Texas, we ate everything. You know, we had these crazy, nasty, awful barbecue, chili hot dog places we used to love to go. And I didn't think about it. And, you know, I just trusted that if these foods were in our food supply, somebody had done all the kind of independent testing that would prove that they were safe. And so I really came with this really innocent, almost naive approach, you know, just assuming that all of these things had been proven safe. And it wasn't until exactly 10 years ago this month that our youngest child had this allergic reaction one morning over breakfast. And, you know, even then, I didn't even know what a food allergy was. So I didn't even identify it as an allergic reaction. I just had her at the breakfast table. She started to get a little bit fussy, rubbing her eyes, and just thought she must be tired. And I took her upstairs to put her down for a nap. And still to this day, I do not know why I went and checked on her that day. I mean, she was my fourth child. I normally just let her take a nap and not disturb her with these three older siblings. And for some reason that morning, I went in to check on her and her face was swollen shut. And my first thought was that maybe one of the older kids had put something in her face and it was just swollen red like a tomato. And so I raced her to the pediatrician and she said, this looks like an allergic reaction. And she starts rattling off data from 10 years ago about food allergies, you know, and I'm thinking, since when, you know, because at that point there maybe were one or two people that you knew that had a peanut allergy and it was such an unfamiliar condition that none of us really knew what to do or how to deal with it or if this friend was coming to a birthday party, we weren't educated on it, we weren't sensitive to it. And so, you know, here I am sitting in this pediatrician's office thinking, how am I supposed to protect this kid? How am I supposed to feed this kid if she's allergic to food? That just sounded totally incomprehensible. And then as a mother of four, my second thought was, how am I going to keep her safe from these older siblings who would never in a million years intend to cause harm? But if they aren't even old enough to read, how am I going to protect her, you know, even in our own house? And so it was just this gripping moment of absolute terror and thinking, I can't do my job as a mom. You know, my job is to protect the health of this baby, and I can't do it. I'm not equipped. And so I just went into this fierce mode of trying to learn everything that I could about food allergies and everything that I could to try to figure out how to protect my youngest child. And so, you know, that that day, as we got everybody calmed down and she was fine and stable, I put the kids down for a nap. It was a Saturday and I put them all down for a nap. And I just remember sitting down at the kitchen table with my computer doing a deep dive into food allergies because at that point I didn't even really understand what they were. It had not been common when we were kids. And so as I was learning about food allergies, how our bodies saw food as foreign and would launch this inflammatory response to kind of drive out that foreign invader. So, you know, most bodies don't see food as foreign and they don't see it as something that's going to cause harm but somebody with food allergies, their system does. And so as I was learning about all these things, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out how to protect her from the food allergens themselves. And as I started looking at the vocabulary there, I was like, holy smokes, these things can have a million different names. And I've got kids that don't even know how to read yet. You know, what am I going to do? And mm-hmm. I'm suddenly turning over every box in the kitchen and thinking, I don't even know what's in this stuff, you know? And I had, like you mentioned, I was an analyst and I'd covered the food industry And I could tell you everything about anything with their financial statements, but all of a sudden I'm looking at the side of the box and I knew darn well why they had swapped out the real ingredients and put in all these artificial ones because it helped drive profitability and manage their margins. 
But what I had never thought to ask as an analyst in the finance world was, what is all that doing in combination? And is my kid allergic to food or is my kid allergic to all this stuff that's been done to it? And so, you know, really that day 10 years ago, I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was really the beginning of my life's work. You know, I just want to stop for one minute um, right here and just acknowledge two things that you said, aside from the million amazing things that you're doing and saying, but as you were talking about coming up to the bedroom, that mother's intuition, first of all, that got you to oh, go to your, yeah. to that, as something happens for us as mothers, I jokingly say, mom, sleep with one eye open. You know, once you become a mom, you just sleep with one eye open and that intuitive knowing, but the two pieces are the gripping terror that parents whose child have a food allergy really do live with much of the time because you're sending your kid to school, you're sending your kid anywhere and you just never know. And these are, these are little micromolecules that can, can get in the air if your kid has a severe peanut allergy and someone opens a bag of peanuts next to them. And that feeling of just ineptitude as a mom that you had, because there's nothing more that we want to do for our kids and protect them. So I just want to honor that, not just for you, but for all the moms and dads that are listening who have children with food allergies. It's a big deal. It's not like hay fever. This is a really big life and death deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's terrifying. And I think, you know, with a lot of parents today, what I've seen is so many of these conditions have come on so hard and so fast. And, you know, unless they're fortunate to find a doctor who has been really well-educated, um, like you have, you know, who really is, has a really deep understanding of integrative medicine and all of these impacts, you know, unfortunately, in most cases, which was definitely mine, I had a pediatrician that didn't have any idea about any of the recent changes in the food system. She didn't have any dietary suggestions, um, and, you know, when I, when I thought about it, you know, she was as dear to me as my grandmother. Um, but she had been educated, you know, probably 40 or 50 years ago now at this point. And so you think about when a lot of these MDs were getting schooled, things like GMOs hadn't even been invented yet. Things like high fructose corn syrup hadn't even been invented yet. And so that mother's intuition plays a really, really critical role, I think, at sounding those alarms. And one of the things that I had to navigate, which was tricky, you know, as somebody who grew up in a really conservative family, was all of a sudden I realized that my pediatrician couldn't answer my questions mm. and I had to break up with that doctor and find a new one. And that was a terrifying moment because I remember my husband saying, you know, you're right to question what she doesn't know. And if she's not willing to work with you on that and acknowledge that, you know, you need to move with what you know and find, find somebody who truly is going to partner with you. And I think thankfully today there really are MDs, um, that do that. Like you're, you're one that immediately comes to mind. Obviously, Dr. Alan Green out on the West Coast, he's another one that comes to mind. And they truly look at the parent-pediatrician relationship as a partnership to protect the child because the doctors are saying, you see your kid every day. You know, I only see him when you bring him in my office. So that was a pretty, um, that was pretty scary at the time to have to have to realize that, you know, as well-intended as a doctor might be, you know, if they were educated 30 or 40 years ago and haven't stayed current on a lot of these issues, they're not going to know what a 21st century mom knows, especially 
with, for better or worse, our access to the internet. You know, I mean, it can be a double-edged sword, but, you know, it does allow us to ask deeper questions. And so, you know, my advice always is if you find a doctor that you feel uncomfortable with, it's okay to break up with them and go find somebody new. And, you know, for us, we found, um, we found a pediatrician who's got young kids himself, his wife's a dietitian. It was great. It's a great partnership, you know, and to really approach it that way. But, um, you know, in those early years, and I think, it's, it's changing medicine. You know, it's, it's, it's creating a huge, we're seeing a huge um, groundswell from the consumers, from the patients. And just recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, issued a statement paper on organics. And I'm pretty sure it's because you had a lot of moms coming into these offices asking their doctors, you know, should I be feeding my kid organic this? What about this? What's the difference? And if the doctors had never received any formal education on that, they didn't know. So to provide a statement paper saying, you know, these, this is organic and by law, artificial growth hormones and GMOs and synthetic pesticides and artificial dyes are not allowed in the production of organic food by law. You know, if a doctor just knows that, that's a, that's a, huge, that's a huge education that he or she can provide to his patients. So, it's really um, tough. Yeah. It, it's really it, tough. Yeah. I went to Yale and when I was applying for my residency, one of my big interests was the impact of BPA, which is an environmental or exogenous estrogen. So it can have hormonal impacts and particularly on pregnant women, they're developing fetus. And so I actually said that my area of research specialty that I wanted to do a deep dive into was the impact of BPA on fetal outcomes in, um, in women who had been exposed in pregnancy. And I mean, this is a top research institution, and this was in the last decade. And I literally had the interviewer say, quote, unquote, you don't believe in that. You don't really believe in that BPA crap, do you? Now, interestingly, it was Hugh Taylor at Yale who blew the lid open on BPA in pregnancy some years later. But you know, even going to seven years of medical education in the last decade and a half, I had 50 minutes on nutrition and no, I mean, I just happened to have had 25 years of integrative experience prior. And it's interesting. And I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I know that you really are kind of yelling fire. You know, last year I was creating a course that I offer called the allergy epidemic. And it's an online program that parents can do if they have kids who have seasonal allergies, food intolerances, if they want to learn more about the causes and origins and prevent food allergies, because there are things you can do in pregnancy and early childhood to prevent these. It's harder once you have them to fully reverse them and kind of be in the clear. But I was creating this course and I was sharing some of the statistics with my husband that we're going to go into the course, the rates of allergies, you know, the one in 68 kids with autism now compared to one in 10,000 a decade and a half ago. And he said, do you think you're going to scare parents? Because it sounds like what you're saying is pretty scary. And I said, you know, if I were in a movie theater and a mom, and I was in the movie theater with my kids and a mom smelled smoke, would I want her to yell fire when the movie theater was already like burning down? Or would I want her to yell fire when when she smelled smoke? And I mean, I feel like in some ways the theater is already burning down and we're already kind of in it. So... You've made you made some big changes. I mean, you started yelling fire kind of first in your own family, but then publicly. How did you how did your parents and friends and husband and kids, how did your extended community respond when you started to make these big changes in your diet and your lifestyle? And what advice do you have for parents who are 
taking flack for keep, you know, for keeping sort of the non-food junk, as I call it, because I won't call it food if it's junk food. How do you how do you support encourage families to get support and stick with these changes they need to make? You know, just listening to you talk, I wish I had yelled fire first. I wish I had had that kind of energy. Uh, when I first learned this, I just I wanted to I, it, the the feeling I had was out of crumpling. And it was realizing that a belief system that I had held was wrong, um, that, you know, there was, were things that were in my children's food that I had had no idea about and the grief that was around that. And I went through a lot of emotions. Um, I went through anger. I went through sadness. I went through such a deep period of grief. Um, realizing that we just simply hadn't been given information mm. when it came to protecting our kids. And, you know, to me, it just seems so simple. It could have come from a pediatrician. It could have come from the OB when I was pregnant with the kids. You know, there were so many spots along the way where we could have learned this. And, you know, here I had, you know, listening to you read off that bio at the beginning, I mean, so academic, so nerdy, so financial, so, you know, focused on the details and the data and yet just so clueless on food. And, you know, I had to step back and really, um, I really had to take a hard look at myself. And so that's, that period was really um, difficult. And, you know, instead of yelling fire, I think I probably just stood in front of my kitchen cupboards and just cried, you know, and just <sighs> thought, oh, shit. You know, now what do I do? Now what do I do? Because I don't have... I don't come from a background that knows this. I don't come from a family that knows this. When I would try to bring it up to my family, you know, they were, they just were dismissive as so many people were. Um, and they just kind of thought it was some hobby or some, you know, obsession that I suddenly had. Um, and I realized that there was a lot of judgment around it. And so I kind of, again, had to look inward and, and think about, well, why had I judged it? And what was it about this that was so personal that made it so hard to hear? And why is it so um, politically slanted, you know, one way? And there were so many questions I had around the psychology of the change. And so, you know, as I was learning it personally for our family, um, you know, I, I, I had a good year of really struggling internally on that. And, you know, I just thought I can just make these changes for my family. And so, you know, for us, I thought, I've got four kids. We've got to feed these kids on a budget. How am I going to do this? I cannot throw everything out of the kitchen. So we started by just doing one thing, you know. And for us, um, in the early years, it was, you know, trying to get the artificial dyes out of the kids' diet because, you know, when I learned that had been linked to hyperactivity, I had a couple boys who at times were just bouncing off the walls. And I thought, okay, I, I'm willing to try that. Like that's not anything hardcore <laughs> radical to just yeah. get these dyes out, you know? And when and that I think is probably one of the most rewarding things you can do first because you see the impact so quickly. And I think it's because it is, it's such an immediate impact. It was a double-blind study conducted at the University of Southampton in the UK. Those double-blind studies, they were conducted seven years apart, were so powerful that all of our own American food companies decided to remove the artificial dyes from their products overseas. So, you know, I thought like, this is a powerful thing. It's quick, it's immediate. Food companies have already responded overseas. I can do that in my own home. I can switch out, you know, the fluorescent mac and cheese powder. I can get rid of the colored yogurt. I mean, there were so many little things like that that I could do. 
And then, you know, other things that I was learning was this artificial growth hormone that was allowed in American dairy, in our milk, in our ice cream, in our cheeses, you know, and the grief I went through of thinking, how much of that have I, have I eaten during my pregnancies? And how many, how many sippy cups have I poured that milk into? We were the only developed country that allowed it. And everybody else had either banned it or never allowed it in the first place. So I thought, I got to get that artificial growth hormone out. So I took baby steps in the beginning. And I think it made it really doable. It wasn't overwhelming. It didn't whack our budget out. You know, it was just one by one by one picking off these items. And I think back to that stage and I had zero confidence in my ability to enact it. And so it was like learning to read or learning how to ride a bike. You do that gradually. It doesn't happen overnight. And so that same change is, is, you know, the approach that I took to overhauling our food system. I had no confidence in the kitchen at all. And so I thought, I've got to learn how to cook, and I never want my children to be in this position. So I want them right here beside me. And they were little, but I just thought I'd rather have a messy kitchen and have these kids by my side learning this with me, learning how to cook. And so that was the approach we took. And so we all kind of learned it together. And I can tell any mom out there, it is 100% worth the time to invest that time in teaching your children to cook when they're little. Because when they're teenagers, and especially boys, and they eat all the time, the fact that the boys can come into the kitchen and whip up their own, you know, omelets or whatever they want to make is great because then they can come in and they're kind of, they're doing, they're doing all this cooking and prep work and everything themselves. And plus, I just love seeing them. And I think it's just great to see the boys in the kitchen at the stove. But, you know, so it was really, it was really, it was really baby steps in the beginning. And then, you know, once I had confidence in my own ability in my own house, then I thought, how do I start to talk about this? And I realized I had you know, had shot out plenty of messengers in the years prior. And so I did a lot of research into um, movements and you know, human rights movements and why some messengers have been able to be really successful and others have been politicized or sort of held at arm's length. So I studied people like Al Gore, who, you know, have done incredible stuff for the climate movement, but at the same time were completely dismissed by one political party. And, you know, I really kind of did a deep dive into why. And then, you know, another leader that I studied was Harvey Milk, and he had done a lot with the gay rights movement, you know, and that was a hugely challenging movement. And so to really kind of study him, and then another one that I studied was Martin Luther King and the way that he led with love. And I think as I, as I really studied King, that's when I really landed on the fact that this was truly a human rights movement and that this is so much bigger than any one of us, and this is truly the work of a generation and that every family, regardless of income, regardless of socioeconomic status or what your zip code is, should have access to clean and safe food. That that is really fundamental, not only to the health of our families, but it's fundamental to the health of our country and it's fundamental to the health of our economy. So it was really in studying King that I think I found my voice in this and realized that I couldn't yellow, yell fire, but that what this was to me was something more patriotic than anything that I could see. Because I was looking at the data, you know, as I was learning about food allergies and looking at the data on children with food allergies, when you go into those data sources, you don't just get food allergy information. You're learning about autism and diabetes and all of these different conditions, asthma, all these things that are impacting our kids. And I realized, how is our country going to function? What does our military look like? And what does our economy look like? And what does our innovation and productivity and entrepreneurship look like 
if this is the health of our children. So I really, I took this different approach and I thought, this is the health of our country. And this is one of the most patriotic things that we could be doing right now is figuring how to, cor- out how to correct this and how to get it right. And as I was looking at our food system compared to food systems around the world, I realized that, you know, as we'd gone in and tried to maximize profit and maximize efficiency, we traded health. And so other countries had taken a much more precautious approach and they had taken what's called the precautionary principle in order to protect the health of their populations. And so rather than introduce all of these brand new ingredients and artificial additives really quickly and really fast because they drove profitability, they were much more hesitant. And so here we had a food system that was jacked up on artificial dyes and artificial growth hormones and high fructose corn syrup and genetically engineered ingredients and weed killers that are now being considered a probable carcinogen from the World Health Organization. So I thought, you know, what if we got even just some of that out, you know, and actually ate food like the Europeans do or like the Australians do or like the people in Japan or even Mexico do? And so, you know, I realized that there was a huge, it was really a huge education campaign. And I thought, you know, if somebody really is going to hear this, they need to realize that this information is being shared with them like a gift. And so I really changed, you know, I listened to a lot of speakers. I watched a lot of speakers. I um, studied a lot of people that were already in the food movement. And I looked at, you know, who were successful and who, you know, even I just didn't want to hear if they got too scary or too shrill. And so I thought, you know, if this is a love thing and if we share this information as the gift that it is, you know, this is a gift. This is how we can protect our country. This is how we can protect the people that we love. Then I realized that it was it was much more widely embraced and accepted. And that's when, you know, I had to find the courage to then start to to lead and to speak on that. That's so powerful. Leading with love is such a powerful thought. And you mentioned that when you first kind of were standing in your kitchen saying, oh shit, and crying and crumpling, that you realized that food was so personal. Can you talk more about that, about food being such a personal issue and how we can make these changes? I mean, just for example, when my kids were little, my husband and I, we've been together for almost 33 years now, and we kind of met around food politics. So we've been kind of on the food politics thing since the early 80s, and it was a very personal thing because of um, our beliefs in environmental health, political systems, and and also just how how animals, for example, were being treated. It was a personal spiritual decision to eat a certain way. As we had our kids... I can remember, for example, one incident where we were visiting my mom's house and my oldest was probably maybe about eight or nine and my youngest was a newborn and my oldest was old enough to read food labels. And so we're sitting at my mom's house with her husband, my kid's step-granddad, and there was a bottle of Aunt Jemima maple syrup, quote unquote maple syrup on the table And one of my kids just picked up the bottle and was reading the label because it wasn't something we had in our house. And we really raised our kids to not be food judgmental and like to really respect that people eat their own way in their own homes. But my son just literally started reading the label as if he were reading the newspaper because he was inquisitive and it was on the table. And 
he read, I think it was high fructose corn syrup or some additive or caramel color and asked me what it was. And I remember just very gently saying, oh, that's a food additive and explaining that. And my mom freaked out as if I were judging what's on her table, which wasn't my intention at all. How do we raise kids who are going to be in schools or go to grandma's house to, on the one hand, be self-protective and aware, but on the other hand, not alienate? How do we teach kids to sort of lead with love also? And how do we do it as parents when we're at the family Thanksgiving or the family Christmas or a cousin's birthday party? And it's it's one thing if you have a food a kid who has a true food allergy, right? It's it's people can understand that. But what if you're just trying to raise kids who make the choice not to eat those things? You know, it's interesting. And what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing it both on the business front and the personal front, is that this, in a lot of ways, is a generational issue. Um, so you know, our parents fed us, and they never, obviously, intended to cause any kind of harm. And, you know, all of a sudden we're sort of changing and we're sort of iterating on that design a little bit. And it's not because what they fed us caused harm. It's because those products have been fundamentally reformulated and re-engineered to contain ingredients that weren't in them when we were kids. So, you know, if my mom, for example, was feeding us mac and cheese as kids, it was still made out of mac and cheese. You know, it wasn't made out of all this artificial stuff that you can't pronounce. And so, you know, I think as a generation, it was a lot harder for them. You know, they fought in these wars for us, whether it was our grandparents in World War II, whether it was our, our parents in Vietnam, you know, they fought for us to defend our country. And so then to turn around and say, hey, our country didn't get this right, you know, that challenges more than just what you're putting on the kitchen table. And I think, you know, that's when I realized that food is so much more than just food. I, I would hit triggers that I didn't even know existed with some people. And I thought, okay, food is, it's social. It can be religious in some situations. It's definitely economic. It is so much more than just food. And then especially when you get to women, I mean, it's so emotional for so many women, you know? And you look at how we had gone through stages in the 80s when Snackwell was introduced and the magic of fat-free, you know, and not thinking twice about the fact that those boxes were just jacked up on things you couldn't even pronounce, but it was fat-free. So it was like some, you know, you got a hall pass on it. And so, again, it got back to the fact that we hadn't had this conversation. We hadn't had this education. And if back in the 1990s when GMOs were being introduced and that, you know, our food system was being genetically engineered to tolerate increasing doses of Roundup weed killer, and that Roundup weed killer, every mom, grandmother, everybody knows not to keep under your kitchen sink. You know, if we had had that conversation, if that had been NBC Nightly News and everybody had been talking about it on the Today Show, people would have said, no way, or label it, let me, let me decide. And we would have been on the same page, but we never had that conversation. So then the first movers in this space were the parents, you know, and all of a sudden we're having to turn to our grandparents and say, we never had this conversation, and this actually happened. And I can remember 10 years ago, Speaking to a colleague, he runs a, um, an advertising agency out here, and he said, if even half of what you say is true, Robin, this is really scary. And I was like, it challenges our belief system. You know, it challenges how we view these government agencies. So it's really, really big. And I think you have to have compassion for how much that can rock some people's world. Some people are fine with it. They're like, of course, holy smokes, ah, I knew it, you know, whatever. Other people are like, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that because that means I'm going to have to change my belief system, not just how I navigate the grocery store, 
but I'm going to have to change my belief system. And so it's a generational tug of war a little bit, you know, in some situations. The flip side of that is that when you get a group of kids together in a classroom, in the cafeteria, for the most part, they're awesome. They totally get it. They don't want to eat peanut if it's going to kill their best friend. Like they don't, it's, it's a non-negotiable thing. They just have the compassion and sensitivity because They've grown up with kids that have ADHD, that have peanut allergies, and they get that diet is no longer one size fits all. It's intuitive to the children. And so I think this kind of transition period that we're in with these generations and this tug of war is temporary. And that unfortunately, the sicker that families get and the more conditions that families get, that's what's driving this food awakening. And, you know, I mean, I, I didn't want to read labels, but all of a sudden with that food allergy diagnosis, I'm reading every label I can. And it's the same with people with, you know, different conditions like diabetes or even conditions like cancer. I gave a, a talk down in Houston a couple of years ago, and there were a lot of MD Anderson cancer doctors there. And a lot of them came up to me afterwards and they just said, you know, we, we aren't taught diet and nutrition in school. We aren't educated about organic food. We aren't taught any of this stuff. And he, this one doctor had the term doorknob syndrome, where he would have cancer patients in his office. They'd come in to kind of sit through the procedures and the protocol and all the treatments they were going to have to go through. And he says, without fail, every time they're leaving my office with their hand on the doorknob, they turn back into his office and they say, is there something I can be doing differently in my diet? And he said, we need to upstream this information. And that was so powerful to me that you had leading doctors at the leading cancer center in the United States saying, we need to teach people this before they come in my office with a cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, again, I just look at the opportunity to educate. And what I really, really encourage people to do is don't wait, don't wait. You know, um, the consumer is moving first. The industry is responding. You know, food companies are listening. Camels just announced that they're going to label GMOs, but I think even more importantly, they also announced that they're going to stop funding the anti-labeling campaign. So they're going to stop blocking this transparency. And I think they realize that these 21st century consumers have to have this information to protect the health of their families, whether we're talking about allergens or diabetes or any of these things. So, you know, the marketplaces will change first, and then I think regulation will follow. And I think it's pretty typical. I mean, policy follows the money. So if we can prove in the marketplace that this consumer movement is really strong and powerful and this movement for free from food is so powerful and we're seeing it at Kroger, Costco, Walmart, you know, the retailers are all in, you know, you've just got a couple of these manufacturers that are still sort of stuck in 1985. So, you know, as, as it becomes more pervasive and more universal and, you know, I kind of come from this place of we all got duped. Every single one of us, you know, we were, we were not informed. We, we were not educated as a country the way our peer groups were as countries. And if you can make it a little bit more universal, then I think that kind of personal, that personal attack that some people can feel dissipates a little bit. I think it's so powerful when American consumers can actually look at companies like, let's just say Kraft, for example, and look at the ingredients in the same product sold here as sold in perhaps England or France or somewhere in Europe, and just recognize that the ingredients we're getting are different. This isn't something sort of like hippie woo-woo parents are making up to try to get our food more organic. This is actually 
national and international policies and differences. It's that's huge for me. I find that to be a huge revelation in so many areas. And it's not just foods, it's medications, it's ingredients that are allowed as fillers and binders and medications even. It's pretty powerful. Well, and you see the transition happening across the board. I mean, one of the congressmen that I have had the pure joy of presenting with, he is so much fun. He's a great guy is, is Congressman Tim Ryan. Of course. And his wife is a fourth grade school teacher. They, they've, got three te- they've got three kids, you know? And so we, he is just the greatest advocate for this generation of kids. And both of us, we were presenting together, and we both were kind of like honing in on this concept of Team USA. And I was like... You know, what's our military look like with these kids right now? They go out on the field with EpiPens and asthma inhalers and insulin. Pumps, it's like, you know, what we can we're so much smarter than this. We're so much better than this. And we just need to bring all of that attention and innovation and entrepreneurship to fixing this. And it's so doable. That's the part I think that's so exciting. But um, you know, we really do like we're starting to see younger congressmen like that who are dads who are stepping in and saying, you know what, we need to do better here. And so he's not only doing it on food, but like you just said, I mean his family in particular, gluten is a really big deal. And it's something that makes his kids really sick. And so he has just introduced a piece of legislation that calls for the labeling of gluten in medication. You know, and so if you look at like all these artificial dyes that are linked to hyperactivity that have been, you know, removed from kids' foods overseas, it's, it's in kids' medication too. So, you know, it's, there's so much low-hanging fruit, I think. You know, it's like you can ask for dye-free medication when you go to the pediatrician's office. So it's like, let's just get back to that being a standard. You know, there's so much opportunity. And I think that's the empowering part is that there are so many ways for consumers, for parents, for people to engage. And so, you know, you can host a book club, you can host a movie night, you can, you know, offer a talk at your kid's school or at your church, you know, and bring in a pediatrician or bring in a dietitian to give the presentation with you, bring in an allergist, you know, I've given talks with a lot of allergists, I've given talks with a lot of MDs, and, you know, they're there to sort of provide the science and to provide the backup on the medical that maybe a a parent or a CEO or somebody in the business world may not have. Um, and I think that opportunity to educate, you know, people are so hungry for this information. I think it's why you see so many of these websites exploding all over the place. It's sort of a delicate dance because you have to be careful where you get that information from. But it, that, that, that insatiable curiosity and that drive to protect our, our, our families is so innate and it's not going away. So, you know, right now it's just like this landscape in front of us is wide open. And that to me is just such an exciting opportunity. Robin, if you were to, you've mentioned gluten and you've mentioned food dyes and we've kind of touched just on GMOs and glyphosate, what would be perhaps the five top changes that you would recommend as really low-hanging fruit for families whose kids are struggling with symptoms that we've talked about or conditions that we've talked about that can be food-related, which According to David Katz and others, Dr. David Katz, I mean, probably at least 80% of the conditions that we're facing, at least as chronic illnesses, are dots that we can connect back to food or food ingredients. So what would be five low-hanging things that families can do? You know, I think the very, very first thing you've got to do is you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that you can create this change because I think there, you know, unfortunately, there's so much negative messaging that you can't do this, you can't cook, you know, swim by the fast food joint, grab this, you know, 
you can, you really can, you know, and that it's, it doesn't have to be some crazy, incredible gourmet elite meal, you know, that's picked out from your farmer's market and whole foods, you know, you can now navigate this as a family. So to really believe in your ability to create that change. And I think the most important thing is to eat less fake food. And so, you know, for us, like it was all these snack packs and all these, you know, microwavable things and all these, you know, boxes of processed this and that. And it was simply dumping the processed food and swapping to the real food. So, you know, bringing fruits instead of the snack packs. It was learning how to cook in a really basic way with, you know, basic olive oil and salt and pepper. It wasn't anything fancy, but it was realizing that there were just so many little things that you could do. And so for us, as we started to eat less fake food, you know, getting those artificial dyes out is pretty easy now, you know, and thankfully a lot of big food companies are responding to that, you know, to try to find organic produce where you can. And again, thankfully Costco, Kroger, Walmart, they're really expanding their offerings there. And the reason is because by law, those products are not allowed to include all this artificial stuff, you know, the artificial growth hormones, the additives, the GMOs, the artificial dyes. And so, you know, for us, it was, what's the organic thing that we eat the most of, you know, find that one thing. I mean, what's the food that we eat the most of, find that one thing and go organic if you can and give yourself permission to do one thing at a time. And I think you lock up and you freeze when you try to do it all at once. It's, it's almost impossible but, you know, give yourself permission to, you know, the first month, if you want to really target artificial dyes and get them out, try that. You know, the next month, if you want to try to navigate around GMOs, go for that. You know, 45% of new products that were launched in 2014 were non-GMO. So that is growing like crazy. So thankfully, you know, accessibility is increasing. We can find products that are free from, you know, in so many more places than we used to. Um, Chick-fil-A even just announced they're introducing a kale salad. You know, I mean, the world is changing. <laughs> it's crazy. It's changing pretty darn fast. It's crazy, but it's great, you know. And I think, you know, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. So for us with four kids, you know, I had to learn to cook. But truly now, 10 years later, it was just the greatest thing. And it still is. You know, the kids, they love to cook. And I love that they have that confidence in the kitchen. And I had to let go a little bit. I had to let it get messy a little bit. You know, I always joke the first ingredient in anything in our kitchen is somebody has to turn on the music, you know, yep. and make it a fun <laughs> place to be. And um, and it really, you know, it is. And it becomes, it just becomes a fun thing for them to do. And it's empowering for them as kids. Um, but really to don't, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. I think that's probably one of the most important things. I love that. Robin, you mentioned, um, and I love this idea, hosting a book club or showing some videos. What are a couple of the videos that you would highly recommend if somebody wanted to host a video night at their community center, their church, their kids' school? The game changer for me uh, was a movie by Deborah Coons Garcia called The Future of Food. And, you know, it's fairly old now, but it was so powerful. And... Well, I, you know, probably the first year of this work, it was my deal. And my husband was really sweet, but it was definitely my deal. And then we watched that movie. And as soon as it was over, I said, I just want you to watch this movie with me. And we watched the movie and he went totally silent. And I said, what, what do you, what, you know? And he said, this makes me want to go back to law school. Mm. And that was when he realized, you know, what had happened systemically in our food system. And I think, a lot of women are very intuitive on this. And, you know, what I found um, 
people that read my book, The Unhealthy Truth, they say they're so grateful because their husband read it too. So, you know, I think any time that you can bring your spouse into the work with you, it just makes it so much easier. So the future of food, I highly recommend. And then there's another one that's a little, uh, it's a lot more recent and a, a lot lighter. And it's called GMO OMG. And the producer and director of that film is a friend too. He's a dad of three beautiful little kids. And he kind of goes on this adventure as a dad, you know, finding out about what's happened in our food system. And it's, it's just a lot lighter. It's a lot more fun. Um, and then, you know, now they're just, there's so many great resources, so many great books. Um, you know, thankfully the Center for Food Safety does a ton of work. Just Label It does a ton of work. I'm on the board there. Um, and there's so many, you know, great resources. Um, but to me, what's the most exciting right now is that the food industry is really responding. You know, they realized that they were on the wrong side of this. And I've had senior VPs inside some of the most powerful companies say, you know, my company is on the wrong side here. So to continue to show the industry that the consumers are doing this completely out of the love they have for the people, you know, in their families, that it's nobody's trying to be a pain or a thorn in the side of anyone. It's simply, we're, we're simply concerned for the health of our families. And that motivation is so pure and it's so powerful. And so, you know, I really think that is ultimately what's driving this change. And doctors really need to realize that too. I think that so many moms like you go to the doctor's office and honestly, you know, in medical training, I did family medicine. And so we do pediatrics as well as adult medicine. And, you know, you kind of get the eye roll or the family that gets labeled as the difficult family because the mom is asking about food and what might've caused this. And it's changing slowly, but surely, and it is changing. But like you said, it, it can be very difficult, but can be life-saving for your children to make that switch to another doctor or find information that you can bring to the doctor's office that can help educate that doctor. Because a lot of times doctors are just really, really busy. And so they get their information from pharmaceutical companies or the medical industry, as opposed to what is now becoming more available to doctors, but has really been considered quite fringe, which is information about how connecting the dots between food and health can be so important. Robin, I want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do. I know that you, I am sure, have had your share of, and we've talked about this, your share of threats and people not happy with you and that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Even though you're on a bigger mission, it can be really painful to get hate mail and to sort that out and to keep going. So thank you so much for the personal sacrifice. Thank your family for the sacrifice they make in making you available to us to do this work that you do. And I can't strongly or more strongly recommend your book, The Unhealthy Truth. It's so powerful. Robin, what's the best way for people to reach you and get more of what you're sharing and what you're teaching? I would just invite anybody that's listening to reach out to me at robinobrien.com, and it's R-O-B-Y-N-O-B-R-I-E-N.com. There's so many ways to get in touch. Um, we have a newsletter that we put out, but I think it's just so important to realize that we're really a team doing this. You know, this is the work of a generation, and that Nobody has to go it alone. Um, all of the issues that we touched on today are so common. 
and that the more that any of us um, find the courage to stand up and speak out, you know, that gives the person beside you courage to do the same. Martin Luther King had a a term that he used. I think he might have gotten it from Mahatma Gandhi, but it's Satyagraha, which is essentially translated as like strength with love or courage with love. And Robin, you lead by example. You lead with love. Thank you so much for your compassion. We will post links to you, to your website, and to also the videos that you mentioned so everyone can easily access those. And I wish everybody ease and health and having fun with baby steps. So we're going to end with Robin's recommendation as the first ingredient in food is good music. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.